0: Uh, thank you, Philip. Page 504 of the Church Bibles is the reading. And um, you've sort of forgotten we're up to. Who's who? Uh, Ahab is the king of Israel. Jezebel is his wife. Uh, Elijah is a prophet who's just confronted the prophets of Baal. And um, as we'll see, had lots of them killed. All right, so 1 Kings 19, um, the whole chapter. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a message to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said, take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat, he looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, He pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat from Abel-Mehalar, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha son of Shaphat. He was playing with 12 yoke of oxen and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I'll come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plough equipment cooked the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant.
1: Thanks very much, Jeff, and uh, good morning again. Um, do you sometimes wish that God did things a bit differently? Um, I know I do. I, um, you know, for instance, I, I think it would be nice if we kind of got some kind of loyalty card or something God gives us just to make you know, petrol a bit cheaper for Christians or you know, our favourite team a bit more likely to win. Wouldn't that be nice if God operated that way? Um, maybe some kind of supernatural warmth, just anytime he's wanted, just be, feel a bit warmer. You can do fire from heaven, why not a few degrees in a factory, that'd be nice. There's trivial things, of course, but how about the more serious things? I reckon this is where it gets uh, challenging sometimes. Don't we just wish God would stop suffering in our world? He'd end war. Uh, he'd end poverty. And we know He's going to do that one day, but don't we want Him sometimes just to just do it now? Don't we wish that God would move hard hearts? I'm sure all of us have people, uh, we, just, we just want God to save, to, to be free in Jesus. And for some reason, we just we don't seem to see that happen. And there may be people here as well today who, uh, if you're a bit on the fence about the whole kind of God question, uh, firstly, big, big welcome to you, uh, but I suspect, like, don't you wish that God, if He's there, would make Himself known and make Himself clear? So there's all sorts of things we might wish uh, God would do for us uh, or do in our world, and it's, it's, I think it's very hard and often very disappointing when those things don't happen. How much worse is it uh, when we think, we're sure that God is going to do something great, And then he doesn't. We have a great expectation, whatever it may be, uh, that God is going to work, and then for some reason, God does not meet that expectation. Um, A few years ago, I was catching up with a young guy. Uh, We were reading the Bible together about uh, once a week, uh, and he was completely new to the Bible, to Jesus. He was exploring, uh, yeah, what it all meant. Uh, as we kept catching up, I, I saw how much he came to like Jesus. Uh, he came to realise how bad his sin was and uh, he realised how great God's mercy is and how grace, uh, how grace just infuses everything. God accepts sinners. Uh, he, he was grasping those truths and I was sure he, his heart was warming uh, towards the gospel, his heart was warming towards Jesus. I was sure at some point uh, I would see him put his faith and trust in Jesus. And so it caught me uh, really off guard actually as we were just uh, chatting away one day and he says, look, this has been really good, I've learned a lot but I think I'll just leave this Jesus thing for now. There's, there's other things I want to do first. And that was it. Um, that really threw me. Like, that's not how things are supposed to go. And it's, it's always sad when someone, uh, yeah, sort of uh, has that direction, but I think it, because it's been so promising and heading in such a good direction, uh, my hopes were up. And so it was, it was far more disappointing. Uh, yeah, far more devastating, I think, just sort of seeing this young man walk off in a different direction. It's always hard uh, realising that God's plans uh, may not line up with what I think God's plans should be. And if you're struggling with that uh, now in one form or another, the feeling that God isn't or hasn't delivered on what you're hoping, what you're expecting, um, our friend Elijah here, I think, has some really helpful things to teach us this morning. And if that's not something you're struggling with now, uh, that's not the kind of thing you've uh, struggled with yet... Uh, Elijah especially has really important things to teach us before that day comes. Now we've been looking through the book of 1 Kings, uh, this is our seventh week now, next week's actually our last week in the series already, uh, Time Flies. Um, if you were here last week, and as Jeff sort of pointed out, uh, we heard last week about Elijah in, in an incredible scene in Scripture, uh, incredible moment in chapter 18. He, Elijah won a standoff, a great competition as it were, uh, against the 450 prophets of Baal, uh, Elijah had called down fire from heaven, proving once and for all that the God of Israel, uh, He is worthy, and He alone is worthy to be worshipped. And it's a massive victory Elijah wins, and you'd think, yeah, he'd still be running victory laps. He'd be in a great place for years after that. What a, what a great moment. He's he's shown everyone, once and for all, God is God is real. God is there, and He is He alone is worthy. Uh, in fact, as you get to the end of chapter 18, if you uh, have your Bibles open, or just uh, keep them open, or turn there if you're able to, as we look at this together, uh, you see at the end of chapter 18, in the last verse, um, Elijah has the power of the Lord come on, come on him after this great victory, he, he outruns the king's chariot, which is quite impressive, for about 40 kilometres, uh, that's quite an impressive run, he's, he's buzzing, he's pumped, uh, the Lord is uh, empowering him and things are going well for Elijah as he finished chapter 18. He must have thought things are looking up, expectations were very high, the nation is going to be reformed now, the king is on board, it's going to be great. Then we get to the start of chapter 19 and how things have changed. Now, as Jeff pointed out, Ahab is the king of Israel and he's been a terrible king so far, actually the worst of Israel's kings. But he was on Mount Carmel in chapter 18 and we assume he was among, perhaps even leading the people, falling down, saying, the Lord, He is God. And Jezebel is his wife, she's the queen, I suppose. And she's actually, historically, she's the one who introduced Ahab and the rest of Israel to worshipping Baal in the first place. And she is not impressed about this report that Ahab brings back from Mount Carmel. She finds out that the 450 prophets, her prophets, basically, they were executed in this winner-takes-all contest. So, a lovely lady that she is, Jezebel, she sends a death threat to Elijah Although, it's, I think if you read it, it's, it's far stronger than just a threat, isn't it? It's a promise, it's a vow. You are going to die, Elijah. I'm going to kill you tomorrow. Yeah, sleep well. Now, this sort of moment, I think it, things really take a turn. Remember, Elijah's just... He's done incredible things at this point. Um, he's, with God's help, raised people from the dead. He's made food miraculously appear. He's called down fire from heaven. When Elijah prays for drought, there's drought. When he prays for rain, there's rain. Elijah, with God's help, can do anything... So, why is a man like Elijah, bold, powerful prophet, why does he get scared and run? Why not call, you know, call down fire on Jezebel, solve the problem once and for all? The story really turns a lot just in that verse, actually. And I don't know the answer. I don't know why Elijah runs at one level. I mean, we're told he's afraid, so he runs. We don't have all of Elijah's thoughts actually laid out for us. And it's quite a unique chapter in many ways. There's all sorts of things that happen, and we wonder why is this happening? Often we're not told, and so we do need to be careful, we're not just going to assume the things that Elijah may or may not have been thinking. On the surface, it's fair enough to be afraid, though. Jezebel is a powerful woman, she's very dangerous, she has killed prophets before, lots of them, and so running from her is just the sensible thing to do that any of us would do in this situation, no matter what. But it seems to me, on top of that, what this represents for Elijah is a problem, Jezebel's threat is not just a dangerous threat to his safety, it signals a devastating reality. The king, Ahab, he's not going to reform the country, as Elijah had hoped. He's not even going to reform his own house. His wife will not reform. So what hope is there for the rest of the country? I think this threat from Jezebel confirms to Elijah that things actually haven't changed at all. The king's change won't be deep, it won't be lasting, and so... As is always the case, where the king goes, so goes the country. It's only a matter of time before they're led astray again. It's a devastating moment, I think, for Elijah to realise this. And so he runs. He, he runs a very long way, actually uh, 190 kilometres, uh, more or less. There's, I think he's got a, a Google map here for you to have a look at if you ever want to go for a hike through Palestine, and Israel. Um, 40 hours. That's on top of the uh, 40 kilometres he's just run from Mount Carmel. It's a fair, fair old hike. But the interesting thing here is he's gone as far as he can, basically, away from Jezebel to start off with. Uh, Beersheba, we read, he goes to Beersheba. That's in Judah. Uh, It's in the south. And uh, if you remember, or if you don't, that's fine. I'll remind us now. Uh, In one Kings, a few few chapters ago, Judah, the north, uh, sorry, Judah, the south, had separated off from Israel in the north. Uh, There's a different king down in Judah, ruling over uh, places like uh, Beersheba. So Elijah is actually going away uh, from danger. He's going to Judah, where there's safety, presumably, Now, spare a thought, by the way, for his poor servant, who we find out he leaves the servant in Beersheba and he goes off into the wilderness. We never hear about that servant again, just sort of waiting around for Elijah to come back, I guess. Poor guy. But it's Elijah, isn't it? It's Elijah that we feel really sorry for. He heads off into the middle of nowhere in the wilderness. He finds a nice broom bush, perhaps like um, this one we've got on the screen here. He sits down under it and he prays, in verse 4, that God might take his life. I've had enough, Lord, he said take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. He lies down and he goes to sleep, perhaps hoping never to wake again. It's a pretty devastating scene, isn't it? It's tragic. And I think we can kind of get it. I think we kind of get why this is happening. The kind of crushing uh, experience he's had, seeing the nation on the cusp of returning to the Lord, returning to right worship Elijah's wildest dreams, all his prayers are about to be answered, he thinks, and then from the highest of highs, literally on top of a mountain, to the lowest of lows. The people, the king, they're not going to turn back to God. They're not going to worship him as he deserves. It's just not going to happen. On top of it all, they want to kill him too. This was not Elijah's plan, I don't think. And he was pretty sure it wasn't God's plan right up until this moment. The rug has been pulled out from under him. Expectations for great things crashing down on top of him and crushing him. Now I'm sure um, we've all felt uh, some of this before. Many of us will have felt uh, perhaps as bad as Elijah. Some here may have even felt worse uh, for different reasons in our lives. No hope. Uh, I feel like our purpose has gone, that God himself may have been responsible for pulling the rug out from under us. There's lots to say uh, in moments like that, but I suppose... I just want to point out i hope you have comfort um, knowing that even the great ones of scripture the mighty elijah um, he too hit that brick wall head on what's more jesus himself knows uh, truly what it is to feel forsaken by god to be betrayed by his friends jesus saw firsthand his country rejecting god's message of peace and they wanted to kill him too that is the bible doesn't sugarcoat our experience as the people of god and i think helpfully Elijah models for us in this moment a way forward. See, Elijah still prays. Even at his worst moment, it's a very bleak prayer, don't get me wrong, it's a bleak prayer but it's prayer nonetheless. He's devastated but he still knows that God is God and God is control. Now, I'll point that out because I don't think it's our reflex usually uh, to cry out to God in our pain. It might be but uh, I think we're seeing here, it's just so important to tell him when we're feeling disappointed, when we're feeling gutted. I think Elijah and a whole host of people in Scripture show us the right response to God is always the honest one. Just just talk to him. Now, this whole scene in the wilderness, um, being devastated by the direction of his country, and the seeming failure of his own job as a prophet... Uh, there's actually something else going on here a bit deeper. that I think uh, there's an echo here, a very strong echo actually, of another hero of the Bible, Moses. Now I want to take us through this a little bit this morning because I think, and I hope you'll see, Moses is actually the key to understanding why things happen in this chapter. We just read what happens, but understanding why, what's going on, I think Moses really helps us. And so i to take us back to uh, the book of Numbers. Uh, Moses was leading the people out of uh, Egypt, out of slavery there. Uh, All of Israel were in the wilderness, just like Elijah. And as soon as they get out of Egypt, the people start moaning and groaning. They don't have food, then they don't have water, and they don't have meat. Just like, you know, like the good old days when we were slaves. Take us back there. That was great. Moses, he's fed up, actually. (laughs) He's fed up. He's had enough, just like Elijah. So verse 11, this is uh, Numbers... I'm not sure what chapter it is, actually. Sorry, I don't... Numbers 11, sorry. Numbers 11, uh, from verse 11. uh, Moses asked the Lord... Why have you put this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms, as a nurse carries an infant, to land you promised on earth to their ancestors? That's, that's pretty funny, right? That's a pretty good whinge Moses is having. He's feeling pretty let down by the people he's supposed to care for. He goes on, where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me, give us meat to eat. I cannot carry these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, please go ahead and kill me. If I have found favour in your eyes, do not let my face, uh, do not let me face my own ruin. So Elijah is is just like Moses here, and Moses is saying, it's not fair. This isn't what I was expecting. This isn't what I thought the plan is. And if this is the plan, I'm out. I can't do this. So those two great examples in mind of people feeling uh, very let down by God. The question for us is, what will God do for his people when we say, I've had too much? If this is the plan, I'm out. Perhaps, toughen up, princess, get on with it. Would that be God's response? Perhaps um, some kind of nice poem about footprints in the sand? Now, I love that with Elijah, uh, at his lowest point, God says, mate, have something to eat. How good is this? Um, Do any of you remember that uh, Snickers advertising campaign? I don't know if it's still running or not, but uh, it's a very memorable slogan, You're Not Yourself When You're Hungry. Does anyone remember that one, the Snickers, a few nods? It was was pretty memorable, and look, I think it's it's biblical, actually. Snacks are biblical, we see here with Elijah. I I hope all our married people here have worked this out as well. Um, You should always have your disagreements or your arguments after dinner. If you have them before dinner, it's not a disagreement, that's a fight. Fill up your stomachs and then have a talk. So I think this is a great picture for us, actually. I'm joking, but I think it's a great picture of how God genuinely cares for us as creatures. Uh, That is, we're not just spiritual beings needing just spiritual help. We're physical beings made by our Creator, who knows us, He knows our needs. And so God gives Elijah, He gives him sleep, He gives him food. An angel even, did you notice this? We're told twice, the angel touches Elijah. Elijah, who feels all alone, some physical touch, maybe that's just a way of being comforted, like a hand on the shoulder, you know, like a bit of a hug. It doesn't say hug, but you know, that kind of idea, I think. So, just take encouragement here, I think, as we skim through this. God really does care about the details of our lives, especially so when we're in our, slowest, our lowest point and cry out to Him. We, we find God cares. The other thing that's happening in this whole section here is, again, it's a replay of Moses' experience in the wilderness. Food and water are miraculously provided there. And the angel of the Lord who appears to Elijah. Moses regularly spoke to the angel of the Lord and encountered him. We hear about Elijah's 40-day trip. It echoes Israel's 40 years in the wilderness under Moses. But also it reminds us of Moses spending 40 days and 40 nights in God's presence on Mount Sinai. Now I've got another map here, I've really gone nuts on Google Maps this week. Uh, here's another map, so this is from where Elijah was in the wilderness, and from Beersheba, to where we think Mount Horeb might be, no one's really sure, so again here, about 400 kilometres for Elijah to walk, uh, mostly in the wilderness. So there's echoes here of Moses, but the biggest similarity, and the thing that uh, is worth pointing out, because it's not obvious, Mount Sinai, where Moses went, has another name, Mount Horeb. That's where Elijah is, exactly the same mountain that Moses spent 40 days and 40 nights with the Lord. In fact, Elijah ends up uh, in a cave or cleft in the rock. Perhaps the very cleft that Moses famously was in as he was shielded as God's glory passed him by. Moses, Elijah, the same mountain, in a similar state. Now that's nice, uh, that's interesting details, good history, but so what? What do we care if Moses and Elijah have a similar experience fair question. Well, hold that thought, because I think the most confusing part of the chapter is about what's is what's happening on the mountain. And as we get to it, I just want you to have Moses in your mind. For those who are familiar with the Moses story, just have Moses in your mind as we kind of uh, walk, walk through what Elijah's doing. So the second half of verse 9 uh, onwards, it's actually quite a hard conversation to follow. Uh, I find the whole thing quite odd. Like, God asks a question, Elijah doesn't seem to answer it, and then he asks the same question, answers exactly the same way, and then completely different kind of set of things God tells him at the end. It's a very strange conversation at face value. So how does it start off? Well, how do you even take God's question at the start there in verse 9? What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, I assume God's not surprised, like, oh, Elijah, fancy seeing you here. It's not that kind of question, is it? Um, I don't think God ever seems to ask a question because he needs information. It's usually to help the person who's asking the question discover something, to think. It's not that kind of question, but perhaps it's a rebuke. Perhaps we should read it, what are you doing here, Elijah? You should be in Israel, being a prophet. You're not supposed to be down here. Uh, Maybe, maybe there's some sort of rebuke here, except that, well, the angel of the Lord did seem to suggest that Elijah was supposed to take this trip, didn't he? He gave him food and water for this journey, about 40 days ago. I think Elijah is supposed to be here. I think the Lord has led him there. We're not told that explicitly, but that seems likely. So maybe it's more like, Elijah, why do you think I've brought you here? I think it's probably more like that. So why has God brought Elijah to Mount Sinai? Well, let's have a look first at Elijah's answer to verse 10 to answer that question. He says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Now, it doesn't, like I said, it doesn't really sound like Elijah answers the question, why are you here? It's just kind of a complaint. Now, maybe he's just as confused as we are, like, why is he? I don't know, just, just some things going on in my life. Fair enough, though. Life isn't great for Elijah, because of Israel, because they're worshipping other gods. Just like it was for Moses, as he stood there in that perhaps the same cave. As Moses, and Moses all by himself, just like Elijah, as he was on the mountain, Israel, down below, was starting to worship golden calves. And let me just read here from Exodus chapter 32, when God says to Moses, as this kind of all comes to light, God says to Moses uh, something astounding. As the people of Israel are worshipping golden calves down below, God says to Moses, I've seen these people, As is from Exodus 32, I've seen these people, they are stiff-necked people, now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I'll make you, Moses, I'll make you into a great, no, uh, into a great nation. That is an astounding moment. God's basically saying, I'm, I'm willing to walk away from this covenant here. We're going to start again. Plan B, let's go. Uh, Moses, he pleads to the people and God, uh, God is very kind. He doesn't go ahead with that. I think we're supposed to have that moment in our head as we see Elijah here answering the question, what are you doing here? He complains. He points out that the people are just like they were under Moses. They've rejected the covenant, they've torn down the altars, they're worshipping other gods. I suspect Elijah says that because he's hoping, he has Moses in mind as well, he's hoping for a new start as well. It seems to me Elijah is wanting God to destroy Israel and to start again like the offer he made to Moses. Elijah wants that to happen, I suspect. I suspect. See, how devastated was Elijah after Mount Carmel? It didn't work. And now he's at Mount Sinai. Perhaps he's hoping God's going to start again with plan B. Wipe out Israel. Start again. I think that background uh, helps us make sense of what happens next. Because again, things happen. We're not really told why. So we have to work out what's going on here. Well, God tells Elijah to, uh, to go out of the cave as his presence passes by, just as he had done with Moses on this mountain. A wind comes along, shattering rocks, the Lord was not in the wind, then an earthquake, the Lord was not in the earthquake, then a fire, the Lord was not in the fire. Kind of reminds me actually of a, a book I have at home called Where's Spot? It's not, uh, not quite as dramatic, you know, no, Spot's not under the staircase. Uh, it's a good book, classic. But you think though, why all this drama? Where's well, Big Show, wind, earthquake, why, God's not there, what's the point, what's going on? When Israel first received the covenant from God, at this exact mountain, as God showed up, these things were a sign of His presence. As He gave His first covenant, there was, there was fire, there was earthquake. God was showing He was present through those things. But with Elijah, there's nothing. Well, what happens next? Verse, uh, verse 12, at the end of verse 12, After the fire came a gentle whisper. After this came a gentle whisper. Now, is Elijah hearing words at that point? Is a gentle whisper, is he hearing God speak to him? Is there a quiet voice speaking? Uh, No, actually. I think the point here is Elijah doesn't hear anything. He hears a gentle whisper. Other translations actually go a bit more literal on this. Other translations go with a thin silence. He hears a thin silence. That is, he doesn't hear God's quiet voice. Elijah hears nothing perhaps a breeze or something that sounds like a whisper at most. Now, I know this verse is often used to suggest we need to listen carefully to hear God's quiet voice prompting us and popping into our heads. I just don't think that's happening here. I'm not sure that actually happens anywhere in the Bible. I don't think that's a good suggestion. In fact, you don't need to be a Hebrew scholar to to translate that word differently. I'm not a scholar, by the way, on on Hebrew things. Um, But we can actually see that after Elijah hears that whisper, he has to go outside the cave, and only then in verse 13 does a voice actually say something to him. He hears something audibly, it's not the gentle whisper. Before that is the silence. Alright, what does that all mean? What's going on? If Elijah had been hoping for a new covenant... For God to wipe out Israel to start again. The fire and the earthquake might have seemed like a good start. Oh, great. Here comes a new covenant. Here we go. But God wasn't there. And the silence in the end confirms there was not going to be a new covenant. One person I came across descri- describes this quietness, this silence. It was profound. There was not going to be a new beginning, a fresh revelation, a plan B. Uh, a plan B to supersede the word of the Lord God, uh, God gave to Moses in those days. That is, God is showing Elijah the plan isn't going to change. And so as Elijah is asked again, what are you doing here? Why do you think you're here? It's funny, Elijah gives exactly the same answer, word for word, he gave earlier. Maybe he doesn't quite get it yet. Or perhaps to be fair, because God hasn't changed his plans, nothing's actually changed for Elijah. It's exactly the same. If this is God's plan, Elijah's experience is going to be the same, he he guesses. He knows it's going to be difficult if God doesn't change his plans for Elijah. And then, from verses 15 to 18, God seems to give what seems at first like a completely disconnected set of instructions. What a strange conversation, right? He tells Elijah, go and win some kings and then find a prophet to succeed you. I think what God's doing here is actually he's affirming, I'm not changing course. I have a good plan. I'm going to bless the whole world. It's just that, for Elijah, it doesn't seem like a good plan, he hasn't seen the results he wanted, but I think here, in these instructions God gives, I think there's great kindness of God. He's pointing out to Elijah and to us that his plans are far bigger than what Elijah can see, and they don't really depend on Elijah. God doesn't need Elijah. He can use him. He'll use his efforts. But you notice here, God's plans here even include the anointing of a foreign king. That's unusual. And we see that God's plans include anointing a prophet to carry on the work from Elijah, long after Elijah has finished. I think we're seeing here Elijah's focus was far too small, just about the work of salvation in Israel, just what Elijah could do. But God here reminds us his plan is global, and his plan is going to carry out through the generations, long long beyond what uh, Elijah experiences. God's going to gather a people to himself, a great multitude, from across the nations. I guess Elijah's never even heard about Tonsley. But here we are. It's a very, very good plan. Elijah couldn't see the whole thing. I think there's an encouragement for us as well. Like God's work of salvation is far better than what we can see. Elijah thought he was the only believer left in Israel. but At the end there, God comforts him and encourages him. No, no, there's 7,000 people who are still faithful. Elijah, I'm actually not as bad as this as you think. It's just that he didn't get to see the whole picture. This makes me think, perhaps Elijah's crushing disappointment from earlier, perhaps, I'm just speculating, but perhaps it came from being too focused on himself. Perhaps he lost sight that God's plans aren't all about fire from heaven and that God wasn't actually reliant on what Elijah could do. God doesn't need his help. He just wants to give Elijah the privilege, the joy of being involved in this great work of salvation, of year in, year out, gathering people to himself and blessing the whole world. The same for us, of course. I think the reason I speculate that with Elijah is I think we can make the same mistake. We can get quite critical of God's plans. We might think His plan to make a great name for himself around our world. It doesn't look that spectacular sometimes. It doesn't look like it's going that well sometimes, especially, say, in the West, perhaps in this generation. We face our own disappointments as we you know, try and share uh, the good news with others not seeing the people we love gathered in as we'd want them to, despite all our efforts, all our prayers. I think this passage is a great comfort for us. Uh, If we've uh, lost our our fire or our passion, as it were, for global mission, this reminds us God's plan is a very good plan. His instructions he's given us are very, very good. And we actually know far more about God's plans than Elijah did. We know even, even more how good God's plan is. God is changing the world. He is blessing the nations with the good news of Jesus. All around the world, people are finding out that all our sin, which is is far worse than we know, all our sin can be forgiven. It can be washed clean as we turn to Jesus. All around the world, people are finding out the warmest of welcomes and acceptance and blessing from our Creator. Far more than we can imagine. See, God doesn't need us for His plans. He does want to use us, though. And so, we're reminded this morning to lift our eyes and see the bigger picture. God speaks to us through His Word. He encourages time in, time out how good His plan is and how good it will be as we continue to see a world that knows Him. God gives us our instructions as well to, to pray. He instructs us to pray, especially for the work of mission, for the Gospel to go out. And God calls us to invest ourselves in a local church fully and to be on local mission in that church. God also calls us to be on about global mission. That's the biggest and best part of his plan all around the world. And just as a one way of applying this, I suppose, that's why we encourage everyone here uh, to be actively praying and financially giving towards gospel work all around the world. Uh, like from the Purdy family, like some of you would have been here a few weeks ago as we introduced the Purdy family with uh, CMS, the Church Mission Society. Uh, they're heading out from Adelaide to Chile. They're not about to go and do a lot of uh, fire-from-heaven kind of stuff. They might, I don't think so, but we'll see. And you and I will probably never see, uh, I guess, the fruit of their work over in Chile. Here in Tonsley, we won't see that. Not until we get to heaven. But the full extent of how God uses our resources uh, to support the Purdy's or those uh, people like them, how God answers our prayers even when we don't see their answers, how God uses our energy to support and to encourage people like the Purdy's, God uses those things to bless the nations and to make, uh, yeah, to make Himself known around the world. So think about what the work of the Purdys is. uh, Malcolm will be training a generation of pastors there in a part of the world where there are so many believers, uh, so many new believers, uh, but so few and such shallow uh, development in the leaders of those people. I reckon that kind of work is the kind of work that understands what God's plans are like. They're global. And they go beyond the generation, training pastors to, to lead a whole new generation in South America. It's a very exciting work. Now, I think this, uh, this final section of the chapter we read, I think this is just a great image for us to finish on. Uh, with Elijah has now been given hope for the future. He thought he was the only one, but now God very kindly gives him Elisha, uh, his new apprentice, and Elisha has, doesn't he, probably the most enthusiastic response to being called uh, to God's kingdom work. a uh, Very enthusiastic response. I doubt the oxen would that, uh, that enthused by at all. But how great. Elijah now gets to train and invest in the next generation to entrust uh, the future to God. A future that one day would see God himself step into our world to be rejected by Israel and find they want to kill him too. God's plan is the best plan. Like Elijah, we won't always get to see that, but we do get to see the incredible grace and mercy of God in Jesus. So, we too, like Elisha, uh, we can be like those, like Elisha and like those first disciples who left their fishing boats behind to follow Jesus. We too can throw our whole lives into the service of God. Would you join me as I pray? Uh, Father God, we are sorry for the times that we pass judgment on you on uh, your actions and your plans for our world, thinking uh, somehow that we might know better. Uh, please forgive us of this. Please humble us. And also just uh, help us to trust you when we can't see uh, why things are happening the way they, we think they should. Trust, help us trust that you are powerfully at work and that uh, you are uh, accomplishing your brilliant, brilliant plan to bring countless people into your kingdom. So please help us to serve you. Uh, Help us to be a people full of great joy. Uh, Motivate us by the grace and commitment you have shown us, that we might show the same to others. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.